Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the summit. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're going to dive right in this morning. I would encourage you to follow along there. You can also follow along online at summitstl.info slash notes. But let's read our passage together this morning. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with the many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he'll destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name. Amen. What is the sum total of human history if not to attempt to rid the universe of God? What is the sum total of human history if not to attempt to rid the universe of God? This quote or idea kept coming up in my study of this passage over the last couple of weeks, and it's the quote, it's a quote that's been uh, well circulated both among Christian authors and thinkers and non-Christian authors and thinkers. However, I would argue this is not a new idea. In fact, you can go back through the entire narrative of Scripture, and this rings unsettlingly true. Go back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Let's eat of the fruit and we can become like God or we can become our own gods. Go forward a little bit. Genesis chapter 11 to the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower to reach the heavens so we can rule as our own God. The big theme of Israel's constant rejection, in fact, rejecting God even as their king. Go read 1 Samuel chapter 8. Where the Israelites ask God, give us a king that we can see. Give us a human king. We don't want you to be our king. We want somebody to act as a God that we can see. Read through the prophets and their constant persecution and rejection. The people's rejecting God's warning, rejecting God's words, rejecting his direction. Why? In favor of their own self-indulgence, their own self-rule. And even in our text 
this morning. The very incarnation of God coming to earth in Jesus. But being rejected, why? Because he was a threat to the very social construct that has convinced so many people this cannot be the Messiah. Why? Because he's threatening our own self-rule. I'll let you mill around this quote in your own mind of how this rings true today. But my guess is that all of us would probably agree that there has always been, since the fall of Genesis 3, there has always been this theme of trying to rid the universe, trying to rid ourselves of God in so many different ways. And unfortunately, it applies to my life more than I care to admit. In 1965, a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse, he wrote this book called The Invisible War. And in it, he described the focus of the spiritual war that you and I find ourselves in, this battle between good and evil that we so often talk about. The focus of that battle is actually our minds. It's an intense, it's a vicious confrontation. It's an unrelenting and unfair battle. Why? Because the enemy that we face does not play fair. And this enemy knows something that I think so often you and I tend to neglect, that our greatest asset is our mind. It is our thoughts. There's a reason why Satan, since the beginning, since Genesis 3, has been known as the crafty one. Why? Because what does he do with Eve? He penetrates her mind. Did God really say such things? Because he knows that if he can rid our minds of God, everything else will, quote-unquote, fall into place. It will begin to distort, to disorient us from seeing ourselves, our family, our friends, our community, our nation, the world, the universe, the way that God has designed us to see such things. With that said, let's turn to our text, because I think all of this connects here. One of the interesting things is that outside of the parable that Mark tells in chapter 4, this is the only other lengthy parable that Mark really touches on here in Mark chapter 12. And as with all things that you find like this in Scripture, your first question should be what? Why? Why does Mark do this? Why does Mark focus so much on this parable? Its length its placement within the text are very intentional. I think part of us, we forget sometimes. Remember, Mark is writing this after the time of Jesus. He's sitting down and he's intentionally crafting. How do we tell the story of Jesus? So it's very intentional what he does here, and we should give pause to wrestle with its significance. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to divide it into three components. I want to look at the parable. I'm going to look at the punchline, and then I want to look at the postscript. The parable, the punchline, and the postscript. So first, the parable. This is one of those moments where it's easy for the significance of what Jesus is doing and saying to be lost on our 21st century context. But this is a scenario that the listeners of Jesus and the readers of Mark's gospel account would be very familiar with them. 
So let's very quickly, let's look at it again. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. And what does he do? He leases it to tenants. And then the owner goes away to another country. And then when the season of harvest comes, he sends a servant to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And how do the tenants respond? They take the servant, they beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. And so how does the owner respond? Well, he again sends another servant. And again, the tenants struck him on the head, and they treat him shamefully. How does the owner respond? He sends yet another servant. And now what happens? They kill this servant. Things are escalating, but the patience of the owner is remaining. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, and yet he had still one other, a beloved son. And so finally he sent the son to them, and he said, they will respect my son, but the tenants, they said to one another, this is the heir. We know how significant he is. So let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So how would the hearers of these words from the mouth of Jesus, how would the readers of Mark's gospel account, how would they see this? Well, it was a common practice in Jesus' day, as much as I still think is current in ours, for owners of large plots of land to lease out that land to local farmers. And they would tend to it, and they would care for it, and they would raise up a harvest within it. However, it was still also a common practice for some of those farmers to assume the land as their own and to refuse to give back any of the fruits of the harvest when the owner comes to collect. And this was actually becoming a very significant crisis in Jesus' day and in Mark's day. And switch to Mark's context as he's writing this. Things in the culture are escalating. This is sometime uh, around the time of the destruction of the temple that Mark is writing this gospel account. And so things are already in turmoil. There's tension that is already escalating very quickly. And Mark, looking back at the life and the words of Jesus, he chooses to focus on this parable for a very intentional reason. Because Mark knows that this parable of Jesus, that Jesus spoke some 40 years before that, would still have a very significant weight to the people who are reading it. But there's another group of people who heard it directly from the mouth of Jesus, who I believe would feel very uneasy as Jesus is teaching. Because what's happening here is there's not simply a societal understanding of a crisis that is affecting the people in this context, in this culture. There is a a, a very heavy religious understanding that's going on here as well. And if you were one of the religious leaders that happened to be in this crowd of people as Jesus is teaching, you would very quickly begin to pick up on that, oh, He's talking about me. In fact, they say at the end, hey guys, um, I think think this is about us. And in that, you can feel this uneasiness that's happening. 
And not to get too deep into it, but there's uh, some very interesting language that Jesus uses here. In fact, he connects it uh, a lot to the language of Isaiah chapter 5. Maybe this afternoon, go and read Isaiah chapter 5. It's a great uh, resource. It's a great connection to what Jesus is doing here. But in Isaiah 5, we see Isaiah, the prophet of God, addressing the people of God as the vineyard of God. And I just want to focus on one phrase out of chapter 5, verse 7. Isaiah writes, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the picture becomes clear, very clear, to Jesus' Jewish audience. The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. The servants are the prophets. The son is Jesus. The evil tenants are the religious leaders. Can you imagine how uncomfortable they would have been in this moment? Because what makes Jesus' parable different from Isaiah is that Isaiah, in the context of Isaiah chapter 5, is talking about how well God cared for Israel. The focus is on the relationship between God as the owner of the vineyard and Israel as his people. And how well God acted as a carer for the vineyard and how much Israel rejected God. But what Jesus does is very significant. He shifts the focus. The focus is no longer God as the owner and Israel as the vineyard. Rather, it's on the people that God has put in charge to care for the vineyard. It has become about the religious leaders and how they are caring or lack thereof the people in which God has entrusted them. Because it's very important that we remember this. The judgment in this parable is not against the vineyard. The judgment in this parable is not against the people of God. It is against those who have been put in charge of the people of God. And this is the moment where after long cries of injustice, after many years of religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness at the expense of the marginalized, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying God is about to break down the walls. God is about to do something different. So kind of the, the pinnacle moment of this parable, after the owner has sent many servants And the response of the tenants has continually been to reject. The owner sends his very son. And this is that moment where we should realize that that's exactly what's happening in Jesus. That after years, after decades, after centuries of God sending the prophets with the message of God, calling the people to repent that the Father still has one left, the beloved Son. And when the Father sends the Son, that is the moment that you and I are called 
to pay attention. There's a Spurgeon quote that I love. And the end of it goes like this. He says that nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, then hope is rejected. Let that sit in you for just a second. God has sent the very best of what he had in Jesus to bring a message of love, a message of grace, a message of hope, a calling to repentance. And if Christ is rejected, then we have rejected all hope. But we must also remember, as we said in the very beginning, what has shown us through human history is that we have all these attempted moments of trying to rid the universe, trying to rid ourselves of God and of his rule. And here's where this parable gets really interesting for me. Because here's what's happening. Here's where Jesus' parable really begins to turn a drastic corner. The tenant's choice to kill the son was a very calculated risk. I've been thinking about this a lot because they're not dumb. They know that if they kill the son, the owner still remains. But what do they say as they see the son approaching? This is the heir. Let us kill him. And so why is that significant? I think because where they miscalculate is that they confuse the gracious patience of the owner for weakness. As the owner sends servant after servant after servant, they see that as a weakness. That we can kill the son, take ownership of the land as our own, and he will do nothing about it. And so friends, in that, there is a call for us that we would never mistake God's patience and grace as weakness. Because what makes God so worthy of worship is that he is a God of both great patience and great mercy, and at the same time, he is a God of great justice and great judgment. Which brings us to the punchline of this parable. As we've seen Jesus do many times, after he tells this parable, he asks the crowd a question. And I believe he's probably directing this question at the religious leaders specifically. And the question that he asks is this. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And here's the punchline of the whole thing. Jesus says he will come and destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think the honest punch to the gut to the religious leaders is not that he's going to come and destroy the tenants. In fact, if you look at, uh, at Matthew's account of this parable, it's a, it's a little bit different because in that, 
the religious leaders actually answer the question from their own mouths. And what they say is that he will come and destroy those wicked, miserable tenants. The religious leaders, they understand punishment. They understand that sentiment. But I think the real problem that they have, the actual button that Jesus is pressing, is at the end when Jesus says he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. This vineyard, these people that I've put you in charge of, I'm removing you. And I'm doing something different. Hopefully at this point, seeing how these events are connecting. Last week we saw Jesus curse the fig tree. And Brian explained what that meant in connection to the temple. And this year Jesus is, or this week Jesus is telling this parable, it's all connected. That Jesus is calling out this uh, many, many years, many decades, many centuries of an unhealthy religious system. That the people of God from a distance may look as though they are doing well, but Jesus understands when you get up close, when you get in the system, what they've offered people is actually just rules upon rules, regulations upon regulations. What they've offered people is hopeless stuff. And they're infuriated with Jesus because he's calling it out. He's not only calling it out, he's saying, I am the last one to come. I am the son. I am the heir. I am the one who is about to restore hope, break down the walls, and do something different. So then here's the question. And the challenge for us is how do we now take this parable that seems like it was directed to a very specific group of people in a very specific time, and how do we translate that to us today? And I think the key in wrestling with that is to ask the question, well, who are these others that Jesus is giving this vineyard to? Who has the vineyard now been entrusted to? And I will give you the answer, it's us. It's the church The capital C church, it's not just the pastors of the churches, it's not just the leaders within the churches, it's anybody who has chosen to be a follower of Christ. He has said, I am giving you this vineyard to take care of it. Reminds me a lot of Paul's imagery that he uses in Romans chapter 9. He talks about this olive tree and that what God is doing is he's grafting in a new branch into this olive tree. He's grafting in the Gentiles or being grafted in with the Jews. It's all being combined to form something new. That God in his great goodness has united Jew and Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all one in Christ. And all given the task to care for his vineyard, to love his people. And I don't want us to miss that because, yes, this is a parable of judgment against the religious leaders of that day, but it's also a command to the church today to care for people. We're told over and over again through Scripture that we're called to plant, to water, and to harvest as God grows. 
And even today, God still sends messengers. He still sends messages to us daily that remind us that we've been called to be patient, that we've been called to love, that we've been called to forgive, to show compassion. And it's in those moments where the battle of the mind is taking place that if Satan can remove those messages from our mind, if he can remove those reminders from our thoughts, then everything else will fall into place. But the opposite is also true. If we receive God's reminders, if we receive the gentle rebukes and corrections that we receive from God through his people, then God promises that through his Holy Spirit, everything else begins to fall into place. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. Church, I'm a very imperfect leader. Some of you are like, yep, I know. And I understand this struggle. I know personally that there are moments when I refuse to listen to the reminders that God sends me. I understand the toll and the exhaustion that being this kind of laborer that God has called us to be can bring. It's a struggle. And it's one that I'm sure I don't have to tell you about. You know it's a struggle. I think this is why Jesus a lot of times, and other writers too, use farming metaphors a lot. I would never survive as a farmer. <laughs> My wife will be the first to tell you. But Jesus uses this imagery of farming, and cultivating, plowing and planting because he understands the work that's involved. He understands the toll and the exhaustion that it takes. He understands that there's moments where it feels like everything else is against you. That there are moments where you just don't want to do it. but he also understands how vital it is. And he understands the harvest that can come out of it. And so this leads us then to maybe the most essential part of this entire passage, the postscript, the PS, if you will, at the end that Jesus adds. Jesus concludes this section by referencing a a very well-known psalm, Psalm 118. would encourage you to go back and read that as well. But he says this in verses 10 and 11, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And there's a very impactful thing that Jesus is doing here. There's a reason why he brings this part of this psalm into this context. 
And that's because Psalm 118 is also known as the Hosanna Psalm. And what would happen is people would walk toward Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is built on this giant hill, this mountain, if you will. And why are the people there at this time? They're there to celebrate the Passover that's coming. And part of the ritual that they would do as they walk toward Jerusalem, as they get closer and closer to the temple, is they would sing Psalm 118. They would literally gaze upon the temple and they would reflect on the history of Israel. They would look at the cornerstone of the temple. They would look at a capstone in the arch that's holding everything together and they would sing this psalm. And so what's ironic about this is when Jesus says this, these people would have sang it just a day or two prior. But what does he say? Have you not read this scripture? And in that, I think what Jesus is saying is, I know you've heard it recently. But do you understand it? Do you know it? Has it affected you? Has it transformed you? Because remember that stone? Remember that cornerstone that you were looking upon? The one when they were building the Temple of Solomon, the builders got together and said, well, this stone is worthless. Let's just throw it in the pile. And then later it actually becomes the very thing that holds the entire temple together. He said, you remember that stone? Well, that's what the Lord is doing right now. And you're about to see something marvelous happen. What's interesting is that the religious leaders of the day believed that they were building God's building. But what they failed to see is they were rejecting the one who held it together. Church, we are a group of broken sinful, imperfect people. And the Father in his patience, in his goodness, in his compassion, looks at us and says, I know. But I am going to unite you together. And so, church, what is the application for us out of this? I believe it is to remember that there will be times when we are sent reminders of God's goodness. There are times where we will be sent calls to repentance, moments of correction. And in that, it's so easy for the battle of evil in our minds to win. It's so easy to take those moments and use them and allow them to fester within us of how messed up we are, how unworthy we are to just continually break us down. And yes, there is truth in that, but the truth that God wants to use in that is so that we can be built back up in Christ. And so for us, may we remember that the Lord is doing something marvelous in our eyes. That Jesus is joining together the new temple the church, 
and as the cornerstone has tasked us all who call ourselves a follower of Jesus to care for the kingdom, to give glory to the Father. And we, the church, should respond by offering up all that we have to the one who is uniting us together through his love, his compassion, his gentleness, his mercy. Let's pray. God, Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners. God, there are so many things that we do. There are ways in which we interact where you would look at us and say, do you not get it? But God, the, the great thing about who you are is that you give us these reminders, but you don't leave us there. So God, might we as your people, as those who have been called to care for, to serve, to unite, might we remember that it is because you are good that you give us great compassion that you look at us with great patience and great love and that you equip us through the power of your spirit to go and to be laborers in your vineyard so God might we remember who you are, what you've done, and through your spirit who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name.